This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. I use DigitalOcean to host a side project, and I'm starting to move the hosting for my blog and this podcast off their current hosting solution to DigitalOcean. With a large selection of one-click apps, from the basics of the LAMP stack, to Ghost and WordPress for blogs, to pre-set up Docker host images, with droplets that can spin up in 55 seconds, the ability to manage SSH keys for remote access, and more, DigitalOcean makes it super easy to get your project up and running. With the ability to easily add team members, use their API to scale out your applications, and have droplets in data centers around the world, DigitalOcean is ready to take on your larger projects as well. Have a question on how to set something up with DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean has a strong community around creating documentation and tutorials as well to get you set up and running quickly. New users can get up and running on DigitalOcean for free using promo code GEEKRY, all cap, to get $10 worth of credit when you get started. This episode is sponsored by PurelyFunctional.tv. Are you looking for a career change but worry that you will face difficulty trying to get your first job in closure? Do you have a limited functional programming background? Would you like a guided path to learning professional closure? PurelyFunctional.tv's online mentoring has just launched. It is step-by-step online mentoring taking you from closure dappler to professional. Sign up with the link PurelyFunctional.tv geekery to get 50% off the first month. Proctor here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. First, Code Mesh London is coming up on the 3rd and 4th of November. With the Tutorials Day on the 2nd of November as well, Code Mesh London is the European conference for alternative technologies and programming languages. You can expect code-heavy talks from over 50 speakers including Sir Tony Hoare, John Hughes, Joe Armstrong, Robert Verding, Don Syme, Stefan Karpinski, Evan Zabucki, core team members of the Hack and Rust languages, and many more. Use code FNGeekery10 for a 10% discount on the two days of conference. On the 5th and 6th of November, Recon will be taking place in San Francisco. Recon is a two-day developer conference that brings together academia and industry to discuss a variety of distributed computing topics ranging from architecting, deploying, and developing NoSQL and distributed applications. On November 9th and 10th, Midwest.io will take place in Kansas City. Midwest.io is a two-day conference bringing together 300 developers for an eclectic collection of talks covering the latest trends, best practices, and research in the field of computing. Visit www.midwest.io to find out more. And coming up on February 18th and 19th in Krakow, Poland, Lambda Days will be taking place. And the call for papers is open and will continue through December 1st, and early registration is now open as well. Visit lambdadays.org to submit your talk proposal or to register. And make sure to use code FUNKYGEEKS4 to win, that's F-U-N-K-Y-G-E-E-K-Z, the number 4, D-W-I-N, for 10% off early bird and regular registration. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com, and I will be happy to help announce them. Lastly, if you're enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating or review on iTunes or your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and I'll put them on my notes for future episodes ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm your host Proctor, and this week with us we have Richard Feldman and Tessa Kelly. Tessa, would you mind giving everybody a little bit of background about yourself? Sure. 
I graduated in May of 2014 with a BA in mathematics, and I quickly realized that what I really wanted to be doing was programming. So I attended MakerSquare, which is a programming boot camp in the Bay Area. And then after that, I started work at No Red Inc. And Richard, do you want to give everybody a background of yourself? Sure. I've been programming since I was nine. I started off with BASIC and then Visual BASIC and then C and C++ and then Java and eventually found my way to the web and developed a passion for creating user interfaces. So I got very into JavaScript and eventually found my way from there into Elm. And that was the reason I wanted to get you on is we circled up at LambdaConf and we talked a little bit about Elm. So I wanted to reach out and kind of have a fuller episode and you asked if Tessa could be on and I said, sure, more perspectives on Elm would be great. So Tessa, you're pretty much brand new and straight into this. How did you find this transition? If you went through this boot camp, I'm sure what they weren't teaching you was the highly functional ways of thinking and purity that you get in Elm. So how did you make your way into Elm and how did that transition kind of come along with you? Well, one of the things that MakerSquare does really well is encouraging people to think about how the language that you're working with is actually working, how things are put together, how things connect. And that does translate to functional programming because all you're doing is looking at flow of information, flow of whatever. So that actually was not too difficult of a transition, I would say. And Elm is also, I would say, relatively easy to pick up. It's kind of a lovely language, so it's not unfriendly. So that's interesting that they kind of lended itself to functional programming. Usually, at least from my experience and people I've talked to and kind of chatted with about how they came into it, And the typical education is like, well, yeah, you think about things, but you don't necessarily think in terms of transforming data. And so it seems really interesting that you said that they kind of started with that and kind of led you down that route. I would say that they encourage you to think about transforming data, what data structures look like. They encourage you to think in a variety of different ways, because how you think is influenced by the framework that you're working with and the language that you're working with. So is that something you came in straight through Elm when you started? Because you're using Elm now. Was that something you jumped straight in to Elm with your job? Or was that something that kind of evolved through the JavaScript route and made some other changes as well? My first experience with Elm was when I had my on-site interview at No Red Inc. Um, (laughs) Richard was sitting on the couch and I was like, what are you doing? And he was like, this cool thing. And I was like, that's super cool. And that's pretty much how I got started with it, I would say. I think you were doing it your first or second day on the job, too. Yeah. That's going to be an interesting perspective as we continue on as the pretty much going in and with a bit of background, but not a whole lot to be able to see how you wound up picking it fresh without a lot of years of preconceived notions about how things should be. And just with your background as well, did you find the mathematics background that you have kind of lend itself to picking up Elm quickly? I think it's hard to say how I would think if I didn't have a mathematics background. Um, <laughs> I can't can't like model that state in my head. Well, I guess, did you find that a lot of things aligned up with the way you already thought about things from your mathematics background? I think there are things in Elm that do have a direct relationship with math. Like Elm has a data structure set, and that's super mathy, like intersections and that's math. That's what math is. (laughs) As far as whether my math background helped me pick it up, probably. I did a little bit of MATLAB programming as part of undergrad, and that was actually my first exposure to programming. So without that, I wouldn't have gone into JavaScript. And without JavaScript, I couldn't have picked up Elm. So yes. Okay. 
And part of that just was thinking one of these sales-y things about functional programming, a lot of people hear is it's a lot like math where you just deal in functions and it's got the very mathematical lineage and things are functions and you compose functions and you add these together and what comes in and what goes out and that whole building up and composition in the mathematical sense. So I didn't know if that was something that was like, this is more familiar than if I came in from whatever JavaScript I did kind of thing. I think that's probably a fair statement. I think for me, the functional has seemed more friendly than JavaScript inheritance, say. Yeah, and it's, I, part of that was the familiarity. Yeah. I would say that one way in which Elm is different from other languages that I've heard sort of more directly described as mathematical, like Haskell, is that in a lot of other languages, you have this sort of intentional choice to use mathematical naming conventions, for example, around monads and things like that. But in Elm, you have a conscious decision to avoid category theory terms and instead base things around terms that are more familiar to programmers as opposed to mathematicians. So I would say from that perspective, if you're used to a more mathematical terminology set around category theory, then you might be more at home in, say, Haskell than you would be in Elm. And part of the reason I dig in is we got to talk at LambdaConf, and we have a little mini interview out from there with you and I, Richard. But do you want to give a little bit of overview of how you got into it? Because the way you described getting into Elm seemed along the lines of the not super deep in mathematics, but kind of some of those realizations around that functional period and everything that kind of helped make you fall in love with it. So do you want to get, give a little bit of background about how you made the transition from JavaScript to Elm? Yeah, I'm about as far as a mathematical person as you could get. Like of the people in this conversation, Tessa is definitely the mathematician. <laughs> I mean, I, I essentially been a lifelong programmer, but I just like building stuff. And essentially, I came to Elm because I had listened to Rich Hickey's talk, Simple Made Easy, and he talked about the virtues of simplicity and about the ideas of just having functions with no side effects that were very simple and easy to think about because you just had such a limited set of things that they could do. And when I saw a blog post about Elm having really good performance and sort of React-style virtual DOM rendering for HTML... That sounded like something that was really interesting to me, and I was sort of curious about type inference and other things. So basically, I came to Elm because I wanted its particular feature set, not because I had any mathematical inclination. If anything, I sort of came to it despite the mathematics, because that's not, you know, that's something that sort of gives me apprehension rather than sort of comfort. <laughs> yeah, and I guess I was thinking more about the touting of pure functions where what comes out is based off what goes in and the minimal limiting side effects and some of those other things you had talked about previously in your talk at LambdaConf and in that mini episode where you started making the transition from JavaScript to CoffeeScript and then you went from CoffeeScript to Elm as well, right? Yeah, so I started uh, basically after sort of embracing this idea that this was a good thing, a good a good style of programming, I just started writing CoffeeScript and deliberately not using side effects when I could avoid it just as much as possible. And again, that was not because of a desire to make things more mathematical, but just because I was sort of on board with the idea that this would result in simpler code with fewer bugs. And what I found was that it did result in simpler code with fewer bugs. And then once I had already been doing things in that style a lot, especially once I introduced immutability into the mix, the idea of having a language that 
sort of was built around those ideas where none of the functions had side effects and all of the values were immutable sounded really appealing to me. I wanted to see what it would be like to work in that world and if there were additional benefits to be had, which there turned out to be a lot of additional benefits. Yeah, and the reason I was just asking about mathematics was more of that familiarity with the world doesn't change underneath you in the mathematic legacy, whereas if you're writing JavaScript and you don't get immutability out of the box, it can seem crazy and what are these things doing? Whereas you return to pure function, you're just like, ah, some sanity, and I remember this. This has got, like, again, I don't have a deep mathematics background either, but it's also, this reminds me of some middle school, late middle school, early high school algebra where... This thing is just this thing, and what goes into this function is always going to be the same, and nothing's ever changing underneath me, and I can start to kind of think about proving my system in some cases, or at least walking through some simpler proofs, because I know that if this thing never changed and holds true, that that thing becomes actually an invariant of a system. Yeah, that's pretty much one of the best things about programming in Elm. It's consistent. So you made the switch to Elm, and I know you were working on your DreamWriter as a project, Richard? Yeah, that was the first project where I actually tried to embrace Elm and do a full rewrite. DreamWriter is out on the Elm site as a reference program of things that are written in Elm, correct? Yeah, elm-lang.org links to DreamWriter because it's open source and uh, sort of an example of how you can build something real in Elm. So you started making this transition. You made it on its own. And you've obviously brought it into work because you've got Tessa who's worked on picking it up. How have you found making that transition to Elm amongst your coworkers and bringing people in who aren't necessarily familiar with Elm and getting them up to speed and familiar with how things work in the Elm world? I guess I'd have to start by asking Tessa her perspective on that (laughs) because she would know better than I am how the ramp up has been. I'd say the ramp up has been great. It's been a lot of fun. As far as the team on the whole, most everyone is super excited and enthusiastic about writing in Elm. Everyone's like, yeah, I would totally take that feature, which we could do in Elm. (laughs) That's true. Uh, But I guess from my perspective, essentially the process we adopted for getting people into Elm was, well, I guess it's, it's sort of changed now. At first, it was basically just my pair programming with people to just sort of explain things and get people up to speed. But now that's sort of transitioned into, so we're hiring. And one of the things that we've found is that the fact that we're hiring and the fact that we use Elm in production has actually sort of impacted our applicant pool. And now we're getting more people applying for our jobs. First of all, just in general, we're just getting more applicants, which is great. But also we're seeing more people coming saying, hey, I want to use Elm, and they actually have Elm experience. So the most recent person we hired was Noah Hall, and he actually is like a core contributor to Elm. And he basically was able to hit the ground running on day one. So I was essentially just explaining our code base to him, and there was sort of no learning curve on Elm. Obviously, we're still happy to hire people who don't have any Elm experience and get them ramped up because, you know, I mean, Tessa, you and your first week, I would say, uh, we're, we're, you know, writing Elm code on your own, <laughs> like yeah. intended straight for production. So obviously it's not a big barrier, but it is a big benefit. I would agree with that. I think within the first week, it was like from, is this an array or a linked list or what is this thing to actually being able to write code that would be in production? So that was fun. Have both of you found that 
the confidence and the ability for someone to get up and running on your code base, familiar or not with Elm, has been impacted because of the move to Elm. You mentioned that it becomes a lot simpler to work in. So what are some of those things that you've found with Elm that helps lead someone to be brand new to the language, but still feel able to do a good production push? One of our coworkers, Aaron, made a really interesting point about that, which is that just the fact that a lot of the data structures you're working with are checked by the compiler and are sort of self-documenting makes it easier to jump into a new code base. So the example he gave was we use Elm's union types to model our actions. So in a, for example, a flux store, you would use strings for this. But in Elm, you have union types, which are declared in one consistent place and are checked by the compiler so you know they're accurate. It's got a complete listing of the available actions for a particular page. So that means that when somebody comes into a new code base and they're wondering what is available, what actions the user can take, they've got one consistent listing and they know that it's up to date. They know that none of those are obsolete and they know that none of the, or at least uh, that none of those are on sort of dead code pathways. And they know that all of those are something that's going to be valid. So between that and the fact that you can add type annotations if you want to your functions, and that's sort of something that we do because it's such a cheap form of documentation, it means that our Elm code base is much better documented sort of almost by accident than our CoffeeScript code base is. And I guess part of that comes from the fact that the Sublime Text plugin, you can actually ask the editor to generate a type annotation for your functions. So it'll basically just, you press Command-Shift-B and it just spits out the exact uh, annotation so you can just copy-paste it into your code. And then uh, we don't even have to, you know, think about it. You mentioned union types. Can you elaborate on union types for anybody who's unfamiliar with the term? Sure. Uh, union type is essentially just a variation on a fixed immutable object where you have sort of a well-defined structure to it. Um, so uh, the simplest example would be uh, an enumeration where you just have a series of uh, constant values. And that could be a replacement for one of your flux actions where previously you would have just used a string for the action type. Instead, you can use a union type that explicitly enumerates all the possible values so you don't have to worry about strings that might be invalid sneaking in. The compiler will tell you if you're using something that's outside that enumeration. The other thing they let you do, though, is in addition to enumerating values, you can also parameterize them so you can store additional data inside them. So again, using the example of a uh, flux action, instead of having just the string for the action type, you can also capture what its payload is and exactly what types that payload takes, such as uh, a string, maybe an integer, maybe a string and an integer, maybe another union type, maybe an entire record, who knows. But you can specify all of that and which payloads go with which names all at the same time. And if I remember correctly, it's the example of you might have a vehicle and it could be a plane, a car, a boat, or a motorcycle. And it's one of those kinds of things. And those themselves can be more complex structures, but you're guaranteed that when you say vehicle or something takes a vehicle that is able to support any one of those types, right? Yeah, that is one way you could use them, sure. So you also mentioned you were guaranteed that they were not going to be used by any unused code paths. Does that mean Elm supports dead code removal or dead code detection at least? 
technically not quite yet. That's uh, <laughs> It's in the compiler, but not in the version that's released right now. But that is essentially something that we already have stopped worrying about because we know that it's coming. <laughs> that sounds pretty interesting. Is I don't know that there are that many languages. I know there are some out there, but I don't know that one would say that there are many out there that can actually go ahead and detect the dead code in them in and of themselves versus having other plugins and things which analyze your code on top of that later. And that's one of the reasons to talk about Elm is some of these novel features. So what other features like that are kind of novel to Elm in both of your opinions? Because you've each had different experiences. And so I'm interested to hear from both of you what you each think is novel about Elm compared to the other things you have seen. Well, Elm is kind of my first experience with a fancy compiled language. So all of it's kind of magic. The compiler is really excellent. It catches so much of everything possible. It's also almost impossible to have a runtime exception. Not actually impossible, but pretty close. And so that's pretty cool. Coming from JavaScript, where there's always a, that method doesn't exist here. And it's like, what is the what, why? Because that thing's not defined anymore, you know? So Elm is nice in that way. Yeah, I guess from my perspective, and this is again getting into things that are coming up in the next release. Um, so uh, the thing that I was alluding to earlier are compiler errors for incomplete pattern matches and for unreachable code in conditionals. I guess also in pattern matches, rather. So essentially, uh, in languages that I've used in the past, you know, you'll have sort of a, a case expression, and you'll have a bunch of different cases, and then you'll have your default case, which falls back on what happens if you didn't match any of the previous cases, or like a switch statement in JavaScript. What's nice about Elm case expressions in the upcoming release is that essentially if you enumerate each of your possible union type cases and you handle all of them and you don't put a default case, the compiler will accept it. If you enumerate them all, but then you do not specify a default case and you're missing one of the cases, like you didn't quite enumerate them all, then the compiler will give you an error and tell you that you missed one uh, so that it you know, can't crash at runtime. So the other thing that it will do in the next release of the compiler is it will detect if you have any pathways that are unreachable. So you've written something that just sort of can't happen because none of your code is calling that. Um, then it can detect that too and uh, give you an error telling you you have an unreachable pathway in your case and you might as well delete it. So sort of having a compiler that can not only prevent you, you know, sort of save you from runtime exceptions, but can also save you from, you know, certain cases of bad code, of uh, sort of code smells automatically is just really nice. Something that, you know, especially coming from, originally I came from a, my compiled language experience or my type checked language experience was mainly Java and C and C++. And I remember thinking that in those languages, the compiler was really more of a burden than a blessing because it just required so much extra verbosity. You had to annotate every single type. Whereas with Elm, it has type inference, so it's the opposite. You don't have to annotate any of your types if you don't want to. But when you do, it provides a nice form of documentation, but you just don't have to if you're going along and just want to crank something out quickly. So the difference in verbosity and also the difference in helpfulness has been really astonishing. And then I think it's still on the roadmap for new features, but one of the other things that sounds really interesting besides the Elm architecture, which we'll dig into in a little bit, is the code rewinding and replay. Is that still coming up on the future roadmap, or is that something that's been snuck in since last I've heard? 
Uh, that already exists. It's just that we don't use it, <laughs> essentially because it doesn't yet work with JavaScript interop, which we use all the time. Essentially, it's just a limitation of the Elm reactor, which is the sort of time-traveling debugger, is that it doesn't work if you're doing FFI with JavaScript. In a future release, it will, and then we can totally revisit it, and it's got some really exciting possibilities, but obviously until it is compatible with our code base, we can't quite use it yet. Can either one of you give a rundown of what the time-traveling debugger is? Sure. Essentially, it allows you to run your Elm program through it, and you can hit play and start uh, sending user inputs through and clicking on things and watching the UI change. And you can hit pause and rewind time and go back in time and watch all those user inputs get replayed in reverse. You can go back and forth and just watch the UI change. And then you can actually go in and change your code without reloading it. And it will load in your code without throwing away all the user inputs that you had. And it will just replay them so that you can you know, rewind time and fast forward through time again and watch all of those inputs play out on your new code base. So essentially what you'll see is the same actions being applied to the new code that you just updated. So the demo online is, is a little demonstration of this with a little Mario app so you can watch Mario jump around and change the gravity constant and then replay the actions and watch his jumps go higher and lower. What we're excited about for that is once it does support our code base, there's also another feature planned for the next release of that, which would let you export those user inputs so that you could send them to someone and have them replay them locally. So the use case there would be we have a QA guy who will try out our code before we send it to production. So we could have him start running this when he's doing his QA pass and record all the inputs that he's clicking around with. And when he finds an error, he can hit pause, export it, and then send it along with the error report to the developer. And then we can locally reproduce exactly what he did to reproduce the bug, which would save us a ton of time because right now we spend a lot of time having him you know, sort of get to that point and then painstakingly reproduce it again so that he can be sure that that's what reproduces it and then send us an English description of how to reproduce it and then we have to follow those steps again to reproduce it. Instead, he could just export it, send it to us, and not only could we reproduce it instantly, but we could make the code change and then replay those changes again or replay those events again and make sure that the bug is no longer reproducible. And then, the, of course, the ultimate there would be to take that exported list of events and turn it into an integration test so we can verify, you know, for the foreseeable future that that bug no longer reproduces. So a lot of potential there. The interop story. I've heard some people who've done some spikes with Elm, thought it was interesting, have mentioned that the interop, in their opinion, seemed like a little bit of overhead maybe because there's a lot of stuff that well what elm gives you is nice the package list on elm is able to fit on a single static web page that doesn't take up too much space and there's a lot of interop that goes on and it sounds like you're still kind of in that world but how have you found both of you how have you found the javascript interop story when you've had to dig back in and go back into javascript through the ffi i have not found it to be too hard to put together. I mean, you just have to be really explicit about what inputs and outputs you have like in your Elm application, which isn't necessarily a bad thing because it gives you the opportunity to be very specific about what should and should not be present. Have you found any tricks 
when you've been working with it that have helped you make that more explicit and make it easier? Because you said if you make sure you're knowing exactly what you're passing in and out, it helps. Have you found any tricks around that when you go back into JavaScript into a looser world where there's a lot of coercion and other things going on? And what have you found that has helped you make the transition to the JavaScript side when you need to deal with that to make sure you're maintaining that good contract for Elm? I don't know that there are tricks necessarily. I mean, there's a way of porting information back and forth from Elm to JavaScript. And there's no way to not be explicit about what you're working with because of the way that like encoders and decoders work in Elm. I mean, in terms of... Part of that is in terms of when you're having to write the JavaScript that you're writing as well. So when you're writing whatever JavaScript, if you don't handle the information that you're handing off to Elm correctly, if you have a decoder that's working properly, it will fail or succeed on the merits of whatever information you've passed over from JavaScript. So you can be specific about what you're expecting on the Elm side, which kind of takes you out of the uncertainty of JavaScript, I would say. Do you have anything to add? I don't know if you could call this a trick, but certainly the way that we tend to do our JavaScript interop using Elm's port system is to try and sort of treat JavaScript like it's a client-server relationship, which is sort of, in the ideal case, just pass the minimal set of data necessary between the two and get as far away from the idea of code sharing as possible and make it more about data sharing. And then if you do have some sort of more advanced structure coming back from JavaScript, like some sort of more complicated thing, and you really can't simplify it into something on the JavaScript side. In other words, if you can't boil it down to just a single string or a single int or a single Boolean, and you really need to pass back some richer data type, then sort of baking the error handling of that, like Tessa said, into a decoder on the Elm side that's essentially working exactly the same way as it would getting data back from the server. Because In that world, you have the same kind of problem where the server might give you back valid JSON, but it might give you back gibberish. And so it's up to you to handle that. So in the same, you use the same kinds of techniques that you would handling a response from a server as you do handling data coming in from JavaScript, just treating it like it might potentially be malformed and having error handling accordingly. It sounds like you're doing a lot of interop with JavaScript. Is that correct? Or is it slowly and surely getting less and less JavaScript that you're actually having to work in and you're finding you can do most of the stuff as you progress with Elm now? Well, I mean, all of our new Elm stuff is like 98% Elm, 2% JavaScript. The reason I say we're doing a lot of JavaScript interop is sort of at a minimum, every single one of our pages that uses Elm also reports to Rollbar, which is our error reporting service. And Rollbar's library is a JavaScript library. So if we want to be able to handle errors nicely and report them to Rollbar so that we can use their nice UI for viewing graphs and so forth, then we have to do interop with that JavaScript library. So it's only a couple lines of code, but it does need to be present on all of our pages so we can get the benefit of that. Besides that one, I can only think of three other cases where we're, oh, four other cases where we're doing this. One is Algolia has an API that we use. Wistia has an API that we use. There's a date picker that we use. And there is, uh, we use lunar.js for full text indexing on one page. So those four libraries we use in JavaScript, I think everything else, there might also be one case where we're doing like a manual redirect on the window for various reasons, (laughs) which we're kicking out to JavaScript for. So I guess that's five cases. But other than that, I mean, 
all of the rest of our Elm code, you know, that's we're talking like thousands and thousands of lines of Elm code to those, you know, five minor escape patches into JavaScript for library interop. Okay, so it sounds like it's gotten a lot more mature in the ecosystem then and what you can accomplish without needing to dive into JavaScript than last I've heard. Yeah, I guess it depends on your use case. I mean, we have a pretty standard web app. With DreamWriter, I needed to do a ton of JavaScript interop, but that's mainly because I was using tons and tons of HTML5 features, which nobody's written any Elm libraries for yet. And honestly, I don't expect they will for a long time. Like I'm using IndexedDB and AppCache and the full screen API. And these are very unusual use cases. It's really honestly not surprising to me that Elm would be focusing on sort of more typical web app use cases like Ajax. <laughs> DreamWriter doesn't actually do any Ajax that on my strange corner case. Okay. I want to circle back around to the Elm architecture because that's one of the other things that makes Elm novel and has an interesting approach. So I'd like to kind of get a rundown of that because I'd hate for us to go the whole conversation without actually digging into what makes Elm interesting. And to me, a lot of that seems to be the so-called Elm architecture that people talk about, which is really the architecture of how Elm works, but with the signals and events and data being processed and manipulated without actually being directly hooked up. Does either one of you want to elaborate on how you found the Elm architecture in styling your code in Elm and how things kind of work when you go about setting up your first sets of code in Elm and how you interact with the DOM and everything else in your application? Sure. So essentially, the way that uh, I've been doing this ever since this library was released is I've been using this thing called Start App, and it comes with another library called Elm Effects. And between the two of them, you can get a very nice canonical setup with lots of nice helper functions that make implementing the Elm architecture easy. I greatly prefer this to the world of React where you have sort of the question of which Flux implementation should I use? There's sort of only one canonical <laughs> implementation of the Elm architecture, and it's very nice. Basically, the way it works is you have every time we make a new page. So we're just, uh, for a little bit of background, we use Rails and we use sort of the old school Rails rather than the single page app, which is unfortunate because it would be a lot nicer to use a single page app, especially with Elm. But instead, what we've got is every single page is first rendered HTML on the server. And then we take that server rendered data and use it to kick off Elm on that particular page. So each of our pages, we make four Elm files. So the first three are implementations of the Elm architecture, like you talked about. So that's view model and update. So model essentially describes the data structure that will represent the state of that page. View takes that model and then returns a description of how you want the screen to look. And this uses the same virtual DOM idea that React has, where you're sort of describing conceptually how you want the page to look. And then the Elm runtime actually takes care of diffing that between the last one that you requested and the current one that you requested and figuring out the minimal set of DOM updates necessary to actually make that change happen in the browser. So you've got your view function, which takes your model and returns this virtual DOM. You've got your model, which represents your state. And then you have your update function, which transitions your model to a new model and does some other things that I'll get to in a second based on sort of a, an action. And so the view's job is to hook up user inputs to actions. So for example, you might say on click, I want to toggle this image from showing or not, something like that. 
So you would say when you're rendering your button, you would give it an on-click handler and that on-click handler would send an action called toggle image to a particular dispatcher conceptually. And then your update function would take that action and it would look at what action it gets and say, okay, I see that I got one of these toggle image actions. So I'm going to update the model to change the value of whether or not that image should be shown, at which point the view function will get called again with the new model and it will re-render with that new model. And obviously you'll make it render without the image being shown. So the last piece of that is how do you incorporate effects into that? So Elm doesn't have any side effects in the entire language, but what it does have are managed effects. Essentially what managed effects are is the update function can optionally return, in addition to a new model, it can also return a list of effects that you want to be performed. So those effects are represented as data in the form of tasks. And tasks essentially work like promises where you instantiate them, you can chain them together, And the difference that Elm tasks have between them and JavaScript promises is when you instantiate a promise in JavaScript, it actually does the action right away. So if you make a new promise that's going to make an HTTP request, it's actually going to hit the network right there when that exact line of code is run. Whereas in Elm, when you instantiate a task for an HTTP request, it doesn't actually do anything right away. That task has to be handed off to the runtime before it will actually get run. So the difference is when you're in your update function and you're building up these tasks that you want done, none of those have any side effects. You can instantiate 100 tasks and none of them will do any network traffic right when you instantiate them. It's only once you hand them off to the runtime that sort of makes its way through the pipeline that they'll actually end up getting run. So the benefit of these managed effects is that each of your functions is very, very testable and very, very reliable because you can tell exactly which functions might potentially have any network requests or not just by looking at whether or not they return a task or an effect or something like that. If they just return a string, if they just return an integer, if they just return a user object, you know for sure that they're not hitting the network, they're not writing the local storage, they're not doing any kind of thing that could be construed as an effect. And with that, it seems from what little I've seen of Elm, because I've gone to the website occasionally to go check in and see what the progress is, because it's something I'd love to get in and play with, but it's been lower on the technology radar because of the likely adoption at any place that I would be working. And so it seems a very reactive architecture and very event driven. And as you mentioned, there are the event stream. And it seems like you're just saying, I'm going to subscribe to these events. They're called when they're called. I don't care. And I know that I need to give other events to be called. And everything's just very isolated and reactive. And they bubble up and get composed into new events or however, in a very similar way that it sounds like reactive extensions for JavaScript works or some of these other functional reactive programming concepts come about. Is that a fair statement? I guess under the hood, we're actually pretty insulated from all that. I mean, uh, essentially, these libraries of StartApp and Elm Effects sort of abstract all that away. We don't really directly work with signals except when we're doing JavaScript FFI. For the most part, it's pretty much just working with our model, our view function, our update function. And then I mentioned there were four files. So model view and update are the three that have to do with the Elm architecture. And then we like to have a fourth file called API, whose job is just to deal with JavaScript interop so that we can isolate all that into one Elm file. 
But yeah, I mean, honestly, that one file, that api.elm, is essentially the only file that ends up actually importing the signal library. None of the others end up really using it. I was thinking more of the update file with the different update functions being more uh, more of a reactive style that this thing's going to happen at this time and this is what we do whenever we get that event, but we're not actually dependent on when that happens or anything. We just know that this thing will be called with this argument and when it does, here's how we need to essentially react to that message signal, right? Yeah, I'd say that that's correct. You don't, like you really are abstracted away from a lot of it. So there's not so much talk about like events bubbling up so much as you add an attribute that's like, on click, do this action. And then that action done done does get done. <laughs> um, the action just happens. In terms of like the programmer's experience of the language, it feels very tightly wired. That makes sense. That makes sense. And that's kind of where I was wondering. And because I had Matthew Podwasaki on and we were talking reactive extensions and reactive extensions in JavaScript. And there was a lot of that where, and again, it may be the signals in Elm that says, I'm going to react to a mouse move and maybe I'm going to put some transformation in that says the mouse down and mouse move to mouse up. And you can kind of compose those series of events and maybe signals in Elm to make a mouse drag event that you then respond to. So I wasn't sure if leading in that sense was you're starting to deal with all of these actions that are independent and this thing just reacts to something else. And when you define your events, you might define your events specifically in your actions and say, here's all the actions that this thing responds to. But then at the end, because your side effects and the actions, you, as you mentioned, get returned from an update function as well, that those will get invoked separately instead of this update function, then triggering these other events at some point too. And now knowing that this cascade is directly affected by this update function versus just the event is triggered at some point because it returns from the update function. So I would say that basically the type of stuff you're talking about with composing signals together and say composing together mouse move with mouse down to implement some sort of mouse drag, that mainly would come up in the type of situation where in, for example, React, you sort of decided that you were going to jump off the React ship and stop doing things in terms of on-click handlers in your components and instead do something out that was just attached to the window or attached to a particular, um, I guess, yeah, really it would, it would have to be sort of an event listener attached to the window. And that just doesn't come up very often. Almost always what you want to do is add something directly to a DOM component and only listen to what it's doing and translate that into an action. There's very little use case, at least for the type of typical web app programming that we do for that sort of fancy composing signals together. It's kind of cool that it's there and we can use it if we want to, but honestly, it just really hasn't come up for us yet. And I was getting at more of the, we'll do some things with Google Analytics and things like that and other logging events and various means where the user takes some kind of action and makes a click and perform and we now go into another page in a kind of single page app kind of architecture where we've got a couple of different things that need to happen now that this event took place. And it's a essentially a custom world event that says, essentially, like, maybe user highlighted text, right? 
So then you have those kinds of events that you start. Does that does Elm lead you into thinking about events in that sense? Not necessarily exactly mouse move events, but other things, events that are like events in your application that you start to decouple that are things that you want to take action on from multiple different places and breaking those out as part as many different kind of update functions or API functions or whatever that is. So that's pretty much exactly what actions are used for in Elm. I mean, we don't talk about them in terms of events. I mean, at least in Elm parlance, Events are things that come from JavaScript, and then we translate those into actions pretty much immediately. Okay, and I think I was thinking more of events as like an event-driven architecture style where you're raising these messages, these events, and something is responding to it, whether or not it's a real JavaScript event or a app event that says, hey, the user logged in, and now that the user's logged in, we need to take these effects, or the user logged out, and now we need to take these actions. Sure. So conceptually, that's exactly what the Elm architecture does, except that, yeah, that just it's just a terminology difference that what we use to describe those sort of user-based events is action. Because that's the first-class citizen, have you found that you start to break out these problems a little more conceptually and say, we're going to actually split out these into a bunch of different update functions because they each are kind of isolated and different and have different scopes. And so we just have multiple things listen to any given action that happens. Well, within the the update file, we'll have a lot of different actions that might occur. And one of those might be login or log out or changing the user's state in some way. And those should be small enough chunks that they make sense that they change the model in an expected way. Elm's never going to change the model in an unexpected way, but one reading it should be able to make sense of it quickly. So our update file will have a lot of actions in it. And some of those actions will take arguments and some of them won't, but all of them will have some interaction with the model, even if the interaction is no operation. (laughs) True. No, that sounds good. I think I'm starting to get a better picture of Elm and how that is. So this is starting to get into finding some of your lessons of what you found based off the Elm architecture and how you've kind of gotten in and adjusted your way of working and thinking as you start to learn and understand the Elm architecture and write code to take advantage of what Elm gives you and the way Elm encourages you to think. I would say that one of the advantages of coming to a company that already uses Elm is that there's already code that uses the architecture in a really clear way, which is convenient. But the Elm architecture is actually really easy to follow. I've never found myself thinking, well, what if we just had this other thing over here? Because the Elm architecture makes sense. It's a system that works really well, and it's it would be difficult to break out of it if you tried. Which is definitely a good thing. It's difficult to break out of and shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> exactly. And Tessa, you said you'd done a little bit of JavaScript before as well, right? Yeah. So Makersquare, the immersive bootcamp that I went to, was a three-month JavaScript immersive. And then after that, I stayed on as a fellow for three months. So I had about six months plus prep work of JavaScript before coming in and doing Elm. And that's part of what I'm driving at is you've got some, you kind of had a little bit of JavaScript experience at least, and there's a bunch of different styles of JavaScript. When you're getting in here and looking at even existing code and an existing code base for Elm that takes advantage of the Elm architecture, what were some of those things you saw from your experience in JavaScript when you went into Elm? 
because you said you saw Richard there during your interview working on this, and it sounded really interesting and exciting. So what were some of those things about that that have influenced your thinking about how you actually break down problems and come through based off your experience that you've had with JavaScript and seeing the difference now if you're going to look back on, say, here's the way I was doing and here's the way I do it now from what I've learned from Elm on top of what I've learned from JavaScript? So probably the framework that I was most familiar with was Angular. And coming to Elm from Angular, Elm is so much simpler. Like the the Elm architecture is much simpler. There's not factories and services and directives and all of these different things and all of these different files everywhere. The Elm architecture is very clean. It's easy to follow. It's easy to find what you're looking for. Like Richard said earlier, all of the actions are in one place. If you're wondering what action is already defined that I could do, you go to one file and your options are listed clearly in a readable way right there. So that's kind of a big difference, which is not to say that I don't like Angular. Angular has a lot of cool stuff too, but Elm is simple comparatively. Simple in a good way, not in a stripped down way. And you all occasionally dip back down to JavaScript. It sounds like it's a lot less actual JavaScript than what it sounded like at the beginning when we were talking where it's very few pieces of JavaScript. It's just called, those few pieces are just called frequently. So when you have to dig back down into JavaScript, have you noticed that it affects the way you take your JavaScript on now as well? Or have you really not gone back into JavaScript at all because it's pretty much covered at this point? I've done relatively little JavaScript since starting here. I'd say that most everything is CoffeeScript for one thing. And the JavaScript, CoffeeScript type stuff that I've been doing here in the past two months, two and a half months or so, has primarily been small changes to existing pages, like adding tooltips or something. So it it doesn't have a great deal of new architecting to it because a lot of our new features have been in Elm. So I don't- Pretty much all of our new features since in the past, yeah, like two or three months have been all in Elm. And yeah, yeah, I mean, pretty much all of our JavaScript CoffeeScript stuff is now just legacy code. <laughs> the only reason we ever go into it is because we need to modify something and don't have time to rewrite it in Elm. So I'll turn the question to you then, Richard, because you've still got DreamWriter and you've said you've got the legacy stuff. How has Elm affected your JavaScript when you have to go back and write your JavaScript or CoffeeScript, whatever it may be, outside of Elm? And how has Elm influenced your thinking when you have to go back and write the FFI side as well? I would say the biggest thing is just that Elm has sort of clued me into the reality that null slash undefined are just bad because Elm doesn't have them. Elm has maybe, which is sort of the opt-in version of uh, the concept of the absence of a value. So basically, I've stopped using null or undefined pretty much entirely whenever I write JavaScript, uh, if I can at all avoid it. And when I do need to use something like that, I try to be sort of intentional about it and defensive about it. And and in all other times, I'll just always try to return a consistent type from all of my functions. And if it's going to return a string, I want it to always return a string. Even if that means empty string, something like that, I know that I'm, so I've sort of gotten into the habit of thinking, oh, the Elm compiler would have yelled at me about that. And so I will habitually just code in a style that would please the Elm compiler. Having said that, I still mess up from time to time and uh, then get bugs that are just as hard to track down as ever because in reality, we don't always have the Elm compiler. We only have it when we're writing Elm, <laughs> which is sad but true. But still, I, I at least try to conform to those sa- that same standard of code quality when writing JavaScript, even though I don't have the compiler watching out for me. Yeah, the main thing about going back to JavaScript is that you're like, 
you want to hit Command B, but it won't it won't give you wonderful compiler errors. It won't do anything for you. Nothing at all. So do you take you mentioned doing type annotations on your own code. Is that something you take back into JavaScript as well, just to make sure that you're thinking about those types up front? Or are there any other things? things that may be doing other than just your nulls? Uh, I don't. It's too much of a pain in JavaScript. <laughs> in Elm, like the, the compiler will generate the annotations for you or plus like you actually have guarantees around them. I guess another important distinction is that one of the main reasons that doing type annotations in Elm is beneficial is that when you see that something returns, say, a string or an int, you actually know that it doesn't have any effects. Whereas in JavaScript, if you do that, you still don't know because it might usually return a string, but sometimes it might also have some side effect. So they'd be kind of misleading in JavaScript. In Elm, part of the benefit of having those things is that when you're debugging, it lets you really quickly narrow down the list of potential culprits. So if you're like, man, local storage suddenly changed. Why did that happen? And you're trying to figure out who could have been responsible for local storage having changed. You can really quickly look through your functions and say, oh, all these things that say they return string, they couldn't be the culprit. All these things that say they return int, they couldn't have been the culprit. And you can just sort of write those off immediately. Whereas in JavaScript, even if you took all the time to add all those annotations, you'd still have to comb through every single one of those functions and grep your whole code base for local storage just to see where it might have done it. So I guess in Elm, there are a lot of benefits to having those annotations. But in JavaScript, I just don't think there are nearly as many. They also wouldn't necessarily be as meaningful. In your example before, you mentioned like vehicles, planes, cars. In JavaScript, you could put a comment that said, like, this is taking a vehicle, but vehicle isn't a meaningful JavaScript concept. At some point, you'd just be saying object, and then it's going to be an object, and then it's probably going to be an object again, which just isn't, isn't as helpful. Well, not to mention, it might... You know, it might not it be might just object. as well, right? It might be undefined. It might be null. It might be a not a number. Who knows? I mean, there's really, a, I guess, there's a big difference when you can actually rely on your annotations being accurate versus when they're just sort of optimistic comments in JavaScript. Especially given that comments can get out of date. Like type annotations in Elm, the compiler will tell you if they get out of date and you you mess them up and they're out of sync with what the code's doing. But in JavaScript. Not only can you not rely on them because they might have side effects, but you can't rely on them because they might be out of date. You might look at the annotation and, and think that it's accurate, but in fact, it changed at some point and you just forgot to update the comment. I absolutely get that. And my reason of questioning that was trying to start to think more in the contract and data transformation. It seems nice that it would be something that I would want to do when I get into my JavaScript because I don't get into JavaScript that much now. But when I get back into it, it start to say, I get this is a comment, this is probably out of date, but when thinking about this function, this thing takes in a string and returns an int, or that's what we're expecting it to. And maybe a marker that says, this function has side effects versus this function is intended to be pure. So when I look at it and other people, they're like kind of that implicit contract amongst coworkers of say, look, we understand this gets out of date, but we want to keep this up to date because we miss those type annotations in Elm and we miss the compiler checking and everything else that buys you. So we just need to be a lot more strict and make explicit about what we're thinking in JavaScript. So I didn't know if any of that stuff applied from being spoiled by Elm because even not being spoiled by Elm myself, it's starting to apply and say, how much of this stuff can I actually make pure when I write JavaScript and limit my side effects and almost make it explicit as to which pieces of functionality explicitly have side effects and treat everything else as pure in that case. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we just 
haven't bothered. <laughs> we certainly are on board with the idea that these things are valuable because we've reaped the benefits of them, but they just don't seem to be worth the effort of trying to add these annotations and comments in JavaScript and then maintain them. Particularly since most of the JavaScript code is is legacy. Yeah. Like it would it would be a big project of going back through existing code, which might be better off just rewriting it in <laughs> Yeah, pretty much whenever we're making a big redesign. So one of the other things that changed recently, in addition to our going to Elm, was we finally got a designer. And so whenever she comes up with a new design for an existing page, we're pretty much taking that as an opportunity whenever we can to just rewrite the whole page in Elm instead of just changing the styles. So as a result, you know, sort of all of our pages are getting prettier and getting a lot more maintainable at the same time. It's great. It's pretty on the outside and then the code's pretty and... Yeah. Win-win. Definitely. <laughs> and that's why I was trying to take it back around to the dream writer because it sounded, again, it sounded like for what little JavaScript you actually have nowadays, it probably isn't worth it. But if you have a whole bunch of DOM and local storage manipulation, I didn't know if there were any of those lessons that you were taking back and making apply to your JavaScript when you have to go back and do some of your dream writer changes that you said were much more DOM and HTML5 feature heavy that Elm hasn't been ported to yet. Yeah, honestly, in DreamWriter, it's kind of the same thing where actually uh, I have not yet done this refactor, but one of the things I want to do with DreamWriter is to abstract out all of that HTML5 stuff so that I can just make it sort of one simple port and basically do everything else with tasks so I can at least put all of my logic into Elm and just have the, the sort of bare minimum interface to JavaScript APIs like we do at No Red Ink. Basically, I just have not gotten around to that because... Now DreamWriter's code base has been around for so long that when I last did it, there actually wasn't a task system yet. That hadn't been released yet. So now it's been out for a while and I sort of might as well go and take advantage of it. I just honestly haven't found a you know weekend or whatever to go and implement that. But basically, if I were to go and invest more time in some sort of rewrite to make DreamWriter more maintainable, I would certainly reach for that before I would annotate the JavaScript code. In general, my preference is to make more Elm code and less JavaScript code whenever possible as the solution to my problem rather than <laughs> cleaning up the JavaScript code. Oh, I can absolutely agree with it. It was more about if you were finding situations that Elm wasn't providing that functionality yet and needed to do the JavaScript, what was being taken there. So what are some good resources for people who are interested in piqued the interest? I know you mentioned there's the Elm Lang site. But what are some other good resources for getting started? I know Bruce Tates mentioned that the Seven More Languages book has some Elm in it. And I just got an email today saying it's been updated with some stuff if you already have it. But what are some of the good resources that you would say and point someone to to learn Elm if they're not actually able to get in and do pair programming with someone who's got some Elm experience already like you do at No Red Ink? So I would say three resources come to mind. The first one is a blog post on our company blog. It's called Building a Live Validated Sign-Up Form in Elm. And it just assumes that you only have JavaScript knowledge. It assumes no functional programming knowledge whatsoever and takes you through start to finish building a live validated sign-up form in Elm using Ajax and the whole nine. So that's definitely a good way to just sort of get your feet wet and successfully build something in Elm that you can use as a reference point to get back to Tess's early point of coming into a code base and actually seeing the Elm architecture in action, that's a way to get yourself one of those and get acquainted with it along the way. The second resource would be Mike Clark's series on Elm. He's done his uh, Pragmatic Studio, 
I sort of was already into Elm before these came out, but I've heard nothing but good things about them. He has a two-part series on getting into Elm and heard really good things. So definitely check that out. And then the third thing is also on our company blog. If you search for introducing Elm to a JS web app, and it's basically about how we sort of introduced Elm at No Red Ink because we didn't just jump in and start doing big rewrites. What we initially did was just we just rewrote one specific chunk of code in Elm, it was specifically one Flux store, so that we could sort of evaluate whether or not it was something we wanted to invest more in. And having just something sort of small, unscary project where we could sort of work out the whole build chain and get it uh, integrated into our continuous integration server and all that stuff and just see how things went before diving in deeper was really beneficial because we're not a company that likes to take big technical risks and we wanted to be able to validate that this was a good idea first. So from the perspective of wanting to figure out whether or not Elm would be beneficial at a company, I would definitely suggest that. And Tessa, what were some of the good resources that you found coming in aside from pairing and working with everybody every day? Were there any other good resources that you found or want to give any agreement on resources that Richard has mentioned? Well, Richard was definitely my best resource because I asked him all kinds of questions all the time. In addition to that, the actual Elm website has a lot of information. It's not necessarily all in order, but there's a huge amount of information there. And there's like a chart that goes to Elm from JavaScript. And throughout the site, there's examples. There's an area that you can try out code in your browser with Examples, there are some problems like write, fold, write using various Elm functions that are given to you. So I would say that that's a really good resource just for playing with the the language initially. Before you get to the Elm architecture, you're probably going to want some basic familiarity with the language, and that's the place to go for that, or a place to go. Go where you please. Be your own person. (laughs) So is there anything we've missed in discussing Elm that you think we should touch on before we start to wrap up? We've been going for a while. We've covered a lot of different subjects, but you both are more familiar with Elm than I am. And I can only ask so many questions having not gotten to play with it a whole lot and just seeing what I've seen from the outside looking in as something that's on my radar. So is there anything else that we haven't talked about with Elm that we should at least cover or make mention to to have people either go research on their own or point them at One of the coolest things that we haven't talked about is the package manager. So Elm's package manager actually automatically enforces semantic versioning. So uh, what that means is that if you make a package and you make a breaking API change and you try to publish it, the package manager will actually reject it unless you specifically bump the major version number. So what that means is that when we're trying to decide whether or not we should upgrade a given package, for one thing, there's actually an Elm package diff tool where you run it and you give it a package and two different version numbers, and it'll actually tell you what changed between those two. So it'll say like, okay, this is a minor version change. Here are the things that were added and nothing was removed or nothing was changed as far as the public facing interfaces. Or you might do it and it might say, oh, this is a major change and here's what was deleted or here's what was changed and here's what it changed from and what it changed to, things like that. So compared to the JavaScript ecosystem where it's just sort of wild west, everything goes, and when you upgrade, you really have no idea what you're getting, regardless of whether it's a major, minor, or patched version number change. It's really nice to just be able to rely on those things and be able to sort of safely upgrade our packages. Tessa, anything from you that we haven't covered that you think is worth mentioning at least? 
I've really enjoyed Elm HTML. I think it's great. It's really uh, cool to be able to construct HTML functionally. So basically, it's a function that's the name of the tag, like div, and then the first argument is a list of attributes. And then the second argument is a list of whatever you want to be inside that. So probably other HTML, but it's, it's a really nice way of writing HTML. It's very clean. It's very readable. I'm a fan. Yeah, actually, uh, our designer, this is actually funny to me because I've seen a number of people who are used to JSX come to Elm and say, well, when is Elm going to get something like JSX? And my answer would be the same as Tessa's, which is that Elm HTML is really nice and I don't really want JSX. And then people say, what about designers? Because designers are often trained in HTML and CSS, but not in a DSL like what Elm HTML has. And we actually, like I said, we recently hired a designer and nobody said anything to her. We, we know that she knows HTML and CSS. And at some point she just went in and just started making Elm commits because you can just sort of tell from looking at the structure that if you know HTML, it's just familiar enough. And I'd sort of hypothesized, but not really had any evidence to back it up, that the idea that designers need something that actually looks like HTML is kind of insulting to designers. I think if you're intelligent enough to be able to wrangle with the entire world of visual design, which has, to me, an impressive amount of complexity to it, because I've tried to get into that world and I am just sort of daunted by the prospect. I think that anyone who can deal with that and do the job of a designer can figure out the difference between HTML that's sort of structured in one way versus that's structured with a slightly different syntax, but familiar looking terms. And that's exactly what seems to have happened in our case, is that she just jumped in and just did it, and it was no problem. And I think that certainly that that also applies to programmers. I think, you know, even if it does look unfamiliar to you, and you're used to JSX as your declarative view binding technique, I think that you'll have the same experience that Tessa and I did, which is that after whatever you know minor initial learning curve there is, it's just really nice to just be working with functions all the time instead of you know this alternate syntax, which is doing a certain amount of magic under the hood. That sounds good. And those are extra good things to make sure to check out, at least on my radar. And I'm hoping that it'll be interesting things to check out for anybody else who's listening who's interested in Elm. So is there anything either of you would like to plug? Are you going and talking anywhere at your local user groups even or doing anything that you want to make mention and any outside projects you want to promote? Is there anything that we want to make sure the audience knows about? I'll plug two things. One is we're hiring. So if you go to noredinc.com slash jobs, we are definitely looking for front-end programmers, people who are interested in Elm. Also, we have lots of Rails job openings and one of the things that we've heard from people is there's an interest in people who want to come in and do mostly Rails, but are interested in Elm just from a personal development perspective and want to get in a little bit of Elm on the side. And that's definitely something we've done in the past. We're happy to let people who are primarily working on the back end get a little bit into Elm just to see what it's like. Definitely something that we do. The other thing I would plug is developing a React Edge second edition. We'll be coming out soon. That's a book that I co-authored. And I've always told people, if you can't use Elm, use React. And I definitely stand by that. And I understand that not everybody uh, is ready to switch languages yet, even though I would heartily recommend doing that. But if you can't, and you are thinking about going from Angular or jQuery or something else, I would recommend doing what we did and going to React first. So that book will help you out with that. I'll just second your plugs. Excellent plugs. I guess another one is if you're in San Francisco, there's an L meetup recurring on roughly every 
two or three weeks on Wednesdays. Uh, if you just search meetup.com for Elm Hackathon, you should come check that out. So that sounds good to know about at least if you, anybody ever makes their way through to San Francisco for any conference or anything, and it might align with that hack group. So the last thing to ask before we get to where people can find you is, do either of you have any calls to action for the community? Is there anything you want people to take away from this podcast and go act on? I'd encourage people to go and play on the Elm site. Read the blog post there, read the documentation, and then do the try examples because that's fun. And I would say if you're uh, happy with how your code base at work has been doing as far as things like React and you've been having a good experience with that and Elm sounds appealing, I would encourage you to just try rewriting some very, very small part of your code base in Elm and just see how it goes. Like I said, we have a blog post on our company blog about this. And that was really how we did it. I mean, we, we've now become one of the biggest production Elm code bases, but it all started with literally I was on a plane ride back from LambdaConf where you and I met initially. And I thought, you know, I bet I could just rewrite one of these flux stores in Elm. And I just did it. You know, it didn't take very long. I just jumped in and just wrote the thing. And uh, I use the same technique, the exact same technique that I talk about in that blog post. Um, and so I really think that there doesn't have to be as big a barrier as people might think to getting Elm going in your production code base. You can just start with something that's small and unscary and just let it grow from there. Those both sound like great call to actions and are actually something that can be tangibly acted upon and have some tangible outcomes at the end of it in regards to picking up and learning Elm. So where can people find you, Tessa, for online and follow along with anything that you're doing? Do you have a Twitter account, a blog, any other places for people to follow you if they're interested in keeping up and seeing what your progress is? Yeah, people are welcome to follow me on Twitter at T underscore Kelly nine. And Richard, where can people track you down and keep up to date? It sounds like the No Red Ink blog is one since you've mentioned a couple blog posts on there. But where should people find you and follow along with what you're doing? Yeah, I'm R.T. Feldman. That's F-E-L-D-M-A-N on Twitter. And our blog is noredinktech.tumblr.com. So we'll make sure to get all those in the show notes as well. I'd like to give a giant thank you to David Belcher. And once again, thank you very much, Tessa and Richard, for giving your time to join me this evening and talk. It was a pleasure talking with you and digging in and getting a better understanding of Elm from people who actually use it and do more with just play around with it and just say, oh yeah, this is a neat little thing, but I'm not really doing anything with it. It's just more neat and novel and maybe someday, but it's good to hear from people who are actually using it and get some real experience in the field with it, especially in a larger group of coworkers. Well, thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.